Hello, it is me again, Erin Udell with the Fort Collins Coloradoan. It is Saturday, February 11th, 2017, and today officially marks the 30th anniversary of the murder of Peggy Hetrick. I wrote a story about Peggy as well as doing these podcast episodes, and that's been on our site for a couple of days now, so if you hadn't had a chance to go read it, uh, you can head online to coloradoan.com to do so. After that story was posted, a lot of the comments that came through were about how people in this town still vividly remember that day, back in 1987. They talk about how they want so badly for Peggy's murder to be solved. I do too. So, if you happen to have any information on this case, please contact the Colorado Attorney General's office. This is the second and last update episode I'll be doing. Again, I can't answer every question, and the first four episodes of this project, which are available on iTunes, are far more in-depth. These update episodes served as more of a way for me to talk to people who I hadn't had a chance to talk to last time or answer questions that still kind of bug me. So I started the last episode with an expert, Detective Steve Connor, and I'm going to do the same this time around. Jason Pohl is the Coloradoans' public safety and accountability reporter. He's been covering crime for us for about three years now, and in that time, he's written about a little bit of everything, even some cold cases, even about Peggy. Uh, But since he's the one who runs out on scenes, reports on crime here in the Choice City, I thought he'd be a good person to run us through some crime stats. So, um, do you have any statistics for us? I know in this case there's been so many theories and suspects and stories. I mean, 30 years worth. Um, What are the statistics behind it? A woman's murdered. Who is statistically most likely behind it? It's kind of difficult to get a really good answer for that. But what I was able to do was find some data going back over the decades to see what the numbers look like. And um, there was a study that came out um, by the Bureau of Justice Statistics in 1993. And what that said was, based on the cases prosecuted at that time, 80% of murder victims knew their killers. That's murder victims who are men and murder victims who are women. Um, obviously, the, the majority of the perpetrators in these cases are men attacking um, women. Now, one of the most interesting things about that is when you kind of um, come through the years and you look at more comprehensive data from the FBI, um, that number kind of ebbs and flows. That 80% was one study figure. Um, in other cases, it's upwards of where the relationship is known. Um, more than half of the perpetrators are known to the victims. And so whether that's a significant other, an acquaintance, a neighbor, someone along those, those edges, it's, it's often the case. Um, and I don't know if, if you can answer this, but are just straight up stranger killings, are those fairly rare where they've never even seen this person in their life? Those are, those are very rare. And it's one of those common misperceptions um, especially based on, on TV shows and movies, um, that you think someone's going to jump out of the bushes and attack you, and that's very much not the case. Um, you see some of those conceptions around um, sexual assault, you see it around homicide, that, that stranger killings and stranger attacks are going to be what's happening, but um, by and large, that's, that's not the case at all. It's a misperception. So, if you're murdered, statistically the chances are pretty high that you'd know your attacker. So who did Peggy know? What was her life like? Who did she hang out with? Well, because there were car salesmen around um, Matt, you know, a lot of car salesmen Mm -hmm. that she hung out with, and there were um, 
uh, let's see. That's Linda again, Peggy's acquaintance from Bananas, the bar in the mall. And when she mentions car salesmen, she's talking about Peggy's ex-boyfriend Matt's co-workers. He worked at a dealership in town at the time. People she had gone out with, you know, or men who had maybe spoken about her or, you know, that, you know, she she did not, I don't think she was 100% monogamous with her somewhat boyfriend, Matt, you know. I think she had her own relationships here and there. And so that, that scared me because I thought it could have been somebody, you know, that was um, just kind of a passer-through person. Debbie, Peggy's closest friend that I talked to, remembers things a little bit differently. She says, though they had their ups and downs, she can't remember Peggy dating anyone but Matt, even though at the time of her death, they were more off than on. She just wanted to be happy. She wanted her and Matt to be a forever. Um, So she was a little bit older than him, and he was still kind of wild at the time. Um, So it was a constant thing. That was like her focus was him. How long? Do you know how long they were together for? Well, um, like you said, it was on and off again, and I would probably have to say two plus years. Okay. What was he like? I still have. Well, he um, he was a car salesman, and he just was kind of not wanting to settle down. Um, and I think part of his feelings for Peggy, you know, he he didn't like the fact that she was older. So it was okay for them to be together, like, after the bars were closed. You know, it was kind of how he treated her a little bit. So that was hurtful. And we spent many nights crying in our wine you know, mm-hmm. about, yeah, about that. Yeah. And... Um, but she, so she yeah, was more so, serious about him than she than he was about her. I think so. Yeah, he was very much a partier. Mm. And I I um, remember I I read something on a blog once, um, and I think they they found this letter that she wrote a friend or something where she said, um, you know, I always I I'm I'm drawn to the wrong guys. I always take the wrong guys. Would you say that's uh, accurate? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, she, Absolutely. How so? Like, what would she, what was she drawn to? Just the unavailable. You know, I never, I never knew her to go out with anybody else. I mean, she had opportunity, but she wasn't interested. So she, and her and Maddie, they they made such a cute couple. They both had red hair and short. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, they, it, I just wished they could have, you know, made that work. But besides the statistics that tell us you're most likely to be killed by someone you know, there's another reason I wanted to talk to Peggy's friends about her dating life, and that reason is named Derek. In the early interviews with Peggy's friends after her death, there are a couple of mentions to a guy Peggy had recently been dating, a youngish guy named Derek, who she had met at the Laughing Dog Saloon, a bar she had started going to more often in the weeks leading up to her death. Barbara, her roommate, told police that she had had an affair with this guy she believed to be Derek, but Peggy was trying to break this off, break off this little relationship. 
In one report, one of Peggy's platonic male friends told police he was crashing at her apartment one night when this Derek came over and started knocking on her door. Peggy told him not to let him in. And Sharon DeConnick, Peggy's temporary roommate, who I was never able to find for this project, by the way, mentioned Derek to police as well, saying he was the only guy she knew of in Peggy's life besides Matt. Six months after the murder, when contacted by police again, she talked about him again, or supposedly she did. She used the name Daryl this time. But she described him as youngish, cute, with kind of long hair, tall but not really tall. Other accounts from friends put his hair color at reddish blonde or brown. Sharon said that he was more attached to Peggy than she was to him, and that he was kind of the one missing card in the situation, that she was surprised no one had seen or heard from him since he used to show up at the Laughing Dog a lot. During the afternoon of February 11th, 1987, Tammy Witt also talked to police. She told them she'd known Peggy and knew she was dating this on-again, off-again boyfriend, Matt. But there was another guy Peggy had been seeing, someone she'd expressed concern over. I read this now 30-year-old statement to Tammy. Does that ring a bell at all? Yeah, yeah. That's pretty much about what I remember. I mean, we, because I was pregnant, really didn't go out that much. Um, mm-hmm. But we did, like I said, we did have a lunch date, and we kept in touch. Um the, the part in that that really intrigues me is the um, the possibility of her dating someone who she was afraid of. Do you remember anything about that? No. Um, I don't remember her saying that she was, you know, afraid of anyone. Um, but I do remember her being involved with someone new. Do you remember anything else about them? No, I sure don't. So here we have a guy who sounds like he could be a decent suspect. We don't know his last name or even have a good description for him. Essentially, we don't know who he is, so we don't know what he's capable of. And because this is how the universe works, the two people most likely to have more information on him, Sharon and Peggy's roommate, Barb, were two people I wasn't able to reach for this podcast. But while we're talking about Derek as a suspect, let's just talk about all the suspects. As you probably know... Tim Masters was catapulted to the top of the police list. So what did pursuing him in those early days do to the investigation? Here's Steve Lado, the attorney who helped Masters write his book, Drawn to Injustice, which details his wrongful conviction. I think what went wrong in the early days of the investigation was that the investigators became tunnel visioned. And once they locked in on Timothy Masters as a suspect, they pretty much started ignoring any evidence that looked at other people or pointed to other people. And I I really think it's probably a common thing in a lot of investigations, but it was really apparent in Tim's case because it turns out there's a lot of evidence that the investigators almost like had to step over to, to, you know, to, to keep focused on Tim. And I think that that was what really, you know, hobbled the investigation from, from almost day one. What were some of those, those pieces of evidence that you think they, they chose to ignore? Well, they chose to ignore other suspects. Uh, when other suspects gave them alibis that were shaky, they'd say, oh, okay, we buy that. And then when Tim gave them a decent alibi, they said, well, we're not so sure about that. And it seems that, like, whenever something was considered with respect to Tim, the police were inclined to believe it as being, you know, something that, you know, condemned Tim. But stuff that pointed to other people, they were very, very quick to dismiss. So who were these other people? 
We obviously talked about Derek, the mysterious figure she was possibly dating at the time. And if we're looking at the people closest to her, there's Matt, her sometimes boyfriend, and we'll talk about him a little bit later. And then there's the strangers. Miles Moffat, a reporter for the Denver Post, extensively reported on Peggy's murder about 10 years ago. He wrote an article titled From 1 to 94 in 2008, and that says that Fort Collins police had a list of 94 men as potential suspects in the murder. One of them was Donnie Long, a 24-year-old transient known for the stabbing deaths of Linda Holt and Mona Hughes, two northern Colorado women who were both in their 30s when Long killed them. He randomly abducted Holt from South College Avenue in Fort Collins in March of 1987. Hughes had picked Long up while he was hitchhiking in November of that same year before he killed her. And then he was arrested later that month. Did you ever come across the name Tommy Long? Uh, was Donnie Long? Donnie Long, yes. Yeah, the Linda Holt, um, Mona Hughes killer. Yeah. yeah, the one that killed the lady out in Black Hollow Reservoir and stuff. Yeah, yeah. When he was arrested, they said, you're under arrest for murder. And he said, which one? Long admitted to killing Hughes and Holt, but never Peggy. He's serving two consecutive life terms. The voice you just heard, by the way, is David Michelson, a former Fort Collins police detective. And I hadn't called him to talk about Donnie Long. I'd called about Dr. Richard Hammond. Hammond, a well-to-do eye surgeon, lived in the Warren Lake area. Actually, his house almost backed up to the field where Peggy was found. And in 1995, he raised some eyebrows and suspicions in town. Well, I can tell you that I don't. I wasn't the officer or the detective on call, but because they needed a warrant, then that's when I became involved, and I because I, that's what I did. I I wrote search warrants and arrest warrants. It was not a hobby, but that's what I spent most of my time doing. But Dr. Hammond had had his house over there where Peggy was killed, and it backed right up to the landings. And he, he lived there with his family, and every time they would leave town, he would hire a house sitter, okay? And then the house sitter would be given the the free reign of the house except the office, his office downstairs, and then they were asked to sleep in the in the rec room on the on the hide bed, you know, the, the bed that was made out of a couch. Okay. And then Dr. Hammond had cameras in the bathroom downstairs and strategically located in the rec room so that he could watch what went on in the bed and watch what went on in the bathroom. And the if you can if you're familiar with heat ducts or cold air returns on the heating system, they're they're metal louvered and the louver points down so when you when you're walking or standing you're looking down and it's all white but if you lay down on the floor and looked up you'd be able to see into the air conditioning system or the heater right Mm -hmm. well he had cameras in two places that watched the bathroom and one of them was when the person was at the mirror and one of them was when the person was sitting on the toilet and and were these House sitters, primarily female. Oh yeah, always. And they were, they were female students at CSU usually, okay. and but there were still a lot of films of other females that were that had used that bathroom because the 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 cameras went twenty four seven. Anybody used that bathroom, and they were on film. 
off of the bathroom, there was this little control room office type setting uh, that Hammond had set up. This is what Michelson said police found inside. Well, it's very expensive recording equipment, camera recording equipment. I mean, large cameras. I mean, when when the focus was, he would, we have we had films of him and he would set bottles or, you know, like shampoo bottles or cleaning containers on the toilet. And then he would go in to his office and focus the automatic focus so you could actually read the labels, the small print on the labels with his camera. That's how close up it was. Mm -hmm. And it's because he had a fetish, obviously. He also apparently had a collection, a meticulously kept one. He had sets of tapes chronicling each woman he taped and her trips to the bathroom. Dave said the collection spanned years. Did anyone on the police force then connect that to Peggy Hetrick or say, hey, look, you know, this murder happened five years ago, just, you know, in this guy's yeah. backyard? We want Ooh, all right. of that. Sorry, okay. you're breaking up. You're breaking up a little bit. I'm sorry. We, yeah, that night, because you could see from their master bedroom, you could see where Peggy Hetrick's body had been found. Mm-hmm. And you remember Peggy Hetrick's body was on display mm-hmm. to the east. Right. You know, and, of course, the police thought then that Dr. Hammock could be a suspect in it. But, you see, it was not something that they wanted to hear at the time. Mm-hmm. And then because of the nature of the beast, they wanted all of these films destroyed mm-hmm. because they didn't want the theory behind it was they didn't want anybody that was on those films to have their pictures out circulating, especially the ones that Dr. Hammond was taking. So they they had uh, Tony Sanchez destroy it and burn it and bury it out at the out at the landfill. Hmm. Something that had never been happened, never happened before, and never probably never happen again. Right. But they burned and destroyed and buried, so nobody got to them. As you probably know by now, if you've lived in Fort Collins or listened to my earlier podcast episodes, days after his arrest, Hammond ended up checking into a Denver hotel and killing himself with an IV drip and cyanide. Because once he once he killed himself, everything just you know fell apart. Like, well, he, he killed himself for a reason, you know, and it wasn't because he got caught doing what he's been doing for fifty years. It's you know. You don't think so? I don't know. I, I, I talked to him when I booked him, and I told his attorney, and I told the, the district attorney then, and then the district attorney at the time that came had made arrangements for him to get out on PR bond, and I told him that he was going to kill himself. I and before he left the police department, I told him. How'd you know? He, how I knew that it was, you know, I said, well, women, woman intuition, police officer intuition. I've talked to the man; he's despondent. He's got something. He, he doesn't want to talk to me. And the lawyer was very upset that I was talking to him. And I was talking to him about booking. And mm-hmm. you could tell just in booking questions, the questions that he had to answer, he, he was despondent. And he was – so they they took me – they took enough time to put him in the hospital. You know, they had him go to the hospital there in Fort Collins. But then he was released after less than 72 hours. And he went straight to Denver and killed himself with that uh, drip. He knew how to do it. Then, of course, as most of us know by now, Tim Masters was convicted of the crime a few years later.
Anyway, back to the potential suspects. Like I said earlier, due to Peggy's relationship with her sometimes boyfriend Matt, he was obviously looked at by police. He was contacted and interviewed by them the morning Peggy was found. He told police he'd seen Peggy the night before at the Prime Minister when he was there to meet another girl, and that the two had had a fight. At that point, he told police they were cutting off the dating relationship, but he offered to give Peggy a ride home. When asked about this supposed fight, he told police it was because Peggy was upset about being locked out by Sharon. This part confuses me, because it seems she might have told Matt she was still locked out, when in fact she'd already gotten back into her place, changed, and then gone back out to the Prime Minister. In talking to some people, they think if it happened that way, Peggy might have just been telling a little white lie about being locked out just so she can go home with Matt, but that's pure speculation. Anyway, Matt told police he saw Peggy leave, and he left a while later around last call with this girl he'd met up with, and she was his alibi until about 3 or 3.30 in the morning when she left his apartment. According to Peggy's autopsy report, the coroner put her death as happening in the early morning hours of February 11th. Do you remember it, those, it, those next couple of days? Yeah, it was, I mean, they took Matt in and were holding him, you know, for DNA samples and, you know, statements, and that was scary. And That's Debbie again. Um, is there anything that you kind of keep replaying in the back of your mind thinking about? Um, I mean, I, I thought about what had happened when she walked into the bar and saw Matt, you know, on a date with another woman. I felt horrible that that's what she had to see. I know she was torn up about it. And like I said, she didn't have a car, so she walked a lot. Um, and I just think that if things would have been different at that moment, if she would have just stayed there or gone to another public place that maybe she wouldn't have been at that place at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, we all think about what we could have done or she should have done or anybody. You know, I know that Matt has just been full of guilt. Um, it really tore him apart. I, you know, kept in touch with him until, oh, I don't know, a few years back. It's probably been six or seven years since I spoke with him. But, yeah, he um, he took that real hard. And, I mean, all of us did, but I think he felt, you know, um, a little bit of guilt, which he shouldn't have. It had nothing to do with him, but if she would have stayed there. I want to bring something back up that Detective Steve Connor said in the last episode. The big thing is, um, and before I even start a cold case investigation, is what evidence do I have? And then the follow-up to that is, are my... Uh, witnesses still alive? Are they still around? And can I can I track them down? So I've mentioned that it's not easy to track down people from a 30-year-old case, but I can't even imagine what it's like for them to reopen those old wounds by talking to me. So I'd like to first of all thank those people who agreed to speak with me for this project. And since I talked about them, I'm also going to go back to that, that first piece of Connor's quote. Uh, let's talk about evidence briefly. I've tried to wrap this up into a neat little package, so here we go. Peggy was found with her possessions still on her, 
jewelry, her checkbook, even her purse was still slung around her shoulder. Her shirt was pulled up, her left nipple had been neatly cut off, and it was missing. Her pants were pulled down, her legs spread, and as the coroner would discover later, some skin in her vagina had also been neatly cut, which I've heard likened to a sort of female circumcision. A small amount of alcohol, under 10 milliliters, was found in her stomach. A pool of blood gathered at the west curb of Landings Drive, a Merritt cigarette butt, the brand Sharon said Peggy smoked, was sitting on top of it and the blood continued, snaking through the field where Peggy was carried or dragged before being laid in the position she was found. She was left in plain sight, with no effort of concealing the body. Police also identified footprints in the field that belonged to a pair of Tom McCann shoes, a brand of dressy men's shoes which were apparently sold in the Square Fashion Mall. The Tom McCann prints faced out toward Landings Drive, as if the person who dragged Peggy did so while walking backwards facing the street. I've heard several different theories in this case, so, so many and a lot of them contradict each other. I've heard the Tom McCann prints were the only prints found. I've heard there were another set of prints, possibly belonging to someone who lifted Peggy's feet as she was being dragged. I've heard she was driven there or possibly pulled into a car from the street. I've heard Peggy wouldn't have walked down landings at night. I've heard she would walk down landings at night. She was also found with two strands of brown head hairs on her, one on her boot, one on her sock. And to my knowledge, they haven't matched anyone in the case. There was also the DNA test results that came decades after the crime, which ended up exonerating Tim Masters. This one's a doozy, too. So here's Selma Eichlenboom with more on that. I'm a forensic medical examiner. I'm an MD. And um, I, was, I still am a member of the, independent, uh, of the International Homicide Investigators Association. That is a, uh, an organization for uh, law enforcement and other workers on crime scenes. And we had a uh, international meeting in Quantico, Virginia in 1999, and there I met Linda Holloway. And Linda, you, you met her, Linda is, uh, 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 was working for the uh, Colorado Bureau of Investigation in that time. And we became friends, and a couple of years later she visited me in Holland. And uh, she saw that the work we did, we, we started the first private uh, independent forensic laboratory in the Netherlands, and we are um, expert in touch DNA. Those are uh, DNA uh, traces left in very low amount by perpetrators or victims in, uh, in, uh, in crimes. And mm -hmm. she was working on that time, she was working on the, on the Tim Masters case, and she was convinced of his innocence. Mm -hmm. And she understood that the work we did, we did and we still do, uh, could be um, of great importance of her case. Mm -hmm. And could she introduced us to the, to the, to the, uh, to the defense team. Mm. So could you talk a little bit more about how um, touch DNA testing works exactly? It's uh, test DNA, uh, touch DNA are minute, so very small uh, particles of DNA that, for instance, you shed from your hands uh, when you are uh, when you use a lot of force on your hands, then uh, then you can shed the the better cells of of your hands. I mean, there is you always shed DNA, but the the the, the upper layer of your skin of your hands is is mostly not. There isn't much uh, uh, good cells to get the DNA. But if you use force, you get a cell layer that's beneath that upper layer, and there you can have good profiles, but they're also, it's still very minute amounts. So um, 
it's very simple to get a DNA profile from semen or saliva or blood, but it's very difficult to get it from the minute stains. So you have to be very, uh, very uh, well educated in finding these traces. You have to know exactly how to sample them. Mm-hmm. And then if you run them on the DNA machine, you get very complicated profiles. So it means a lot of work for the lab technician and the DNA expert to uh, to work with those samples. That's why not many labs use them. Mm-hmm. So what pieces of Peggy's clothing did you test and, and what did you find? Uh, we cannot talk about the, the, the second investigation we did for the Attorney General. So we can only talk about what we did for the defense. And uh, we sampled several uh, pieces of clothing and the most important one was the, the underpants, mm-hmm. the, the uh, how do you call them, the, the panties. Mm-hmm. Uh, they call them knickers in, in English, uh, mm-hmm. but the panties, where she, she was found on the crime scene with her pants uh, pulled down, and we found uh, grip marks on the, on the waistband, on the inside of the waistband, and that's where we found, uh, th- that's a very incriminating uh, location, and that's where we found uh, male DNA. Okay. And I don't know if you could say this or not, but that was the DNA of her ex-boyfriend? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Well, that's that's common knowledge. You can find right. it right. on the internet. So is that... It- Selma's right. It's now common knowledge that when doing touch DNA testing to eliminate suspects in the case in 2007, unknown DNA was found on Peggy's clothing. It was a positive profile of her sometimes boyfriend, Matt. The test also revealed contamination from law enforcement that worked the scene and a DNA profile for a police officer, according to Selma. I've said this and she reiterated it to me. There are pictures of law enforcement handling evidence without gloves on. Again, 1987. Is the, the skin cells that you're talking about, are those things that, you know, if, if someone grabbed you um, and then you maybe washed that article of clothing, would something like that still linger or is that would that have to be um, the same day or, you know? Well, it 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 uh, Peggy was a very clean girl. I mean, she had she you could see in all the clothing that she was very clean on herself. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you wash, then then those traces, those minute traces, are gone. So it's uh, it's very likely that uh, that it was deposited during the crime. I also want to point out, like I did in last year's podcast, that people have explained this DNA away by saying Peggy and Matt were you know, in this on-again, off-again, intimate relationship, and that some of those skin cells could have been deposited during their run-in at the prime minister. Anyway, back to Selma. If you find, uh, the closer you find a trace to the, to the, the, the people involved, so the closing, uh, the, 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 the more incriminating it is. But, but uh, things that can be transferred very easily, for instance, hairs, can be, can be secondary transfers. So I'm, I'm walking in a shop, I pass somebody, I, I knock into somebody, and they lose some hair on my coat. And if I go mm-hmm. to another place, you can find the coat, the hairs on my coat from somebody else. Another thing I wanted to ask Selma was about Peggy's genital mutilation. When investigating the murder, police apparently consulted a plastic surgeon on the cuts made to Peggy's vagina, and he found them to be highly surgical. I've also heard things to the contrary. Well, I don't think it was surgical. I mean, I've done surgery as a resident for a year, so I know what it's like to cut into, uh, and I did obstetrics for half a year, so I know what, what, what living tissue uh, uh, does and, 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 and dead tissue. 
but this this was not a, a surgical uh, surgical shift. I don't believe that. I mean, I never know for sure. I wasn't there, but it doesn't look like it. If you, it's 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 not so difficult if you have a piece of skin. If you pull it and you put a pair of scissors to it, then you can cut whatever you like. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the injuries, you can see there are little cuts in there. If you talk surgical, the point of a surgical incision is that you get as straight a line as possible because that will heal the best. And uh, if you look at the injuries, there's clearly little cuts there. And you can have that if you have a knife and you don't know how to how to handle it, then you, you, you can't, can't get into the right direction, so you have to correct yourself. That mm-hmm. could be a reason that there's little cuts. But then you don't talk about highly skilled, then you, then you just, just use a knife, but not in a surgical way. Uh, but if you take a pair of scissors, then you can cut. If you, if you cut like a piece of paper and you have to recut and cut and cut, you know what I mean? So not mm-hmm. a straight line, but every time, that's, that's what you see on the injuries. And okay. it's, uh, it's, it, it really doesn't take two people. I, 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 can, I could do that by myself. So okay. I don't think it's a surgery. And it's, 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 what, what surprises me is the fact that uh, they talk about the surgical cut, and it was, in the, in the, it was used in the conviction of Tim Masters. And Tim Masters is a 15-year-old boy. How would he ever be able to, to get such skills? I mm-hmm. mean, so that, that doesn't make any sense. And when I looked at the pictures, I absolutely didn't think it was a surgical cut. That would be a very bad surgeon. When Selma first introduced herself, she talked about the woman who connected her with this case, Linda Wheeler-Holloway. I've kind of been saving Linda here for the end. She worked the case that very first day. She's actually the person who connected Tim Masters to it and ended up later helping him get out of prison. But she also processed Peggy's apartment. And since she and Peggy were the same age, she said the case kind of stuck with her. How does it feel knowing that that three decades have passed since you first responded to that call? Oh, it's... Um, very sad that that we're still at this we're still in limbo it's the only case in all my career that that has been left this long without um, you know without an arrest or not even with closure not even with a closing the case so it's like um, the family and such can just go it's they've done all they can I feel like it's still in limbo no other cases really affected you the way that this one? None. And I've had, I've worked in 40 years as a commissioned officer, and, and now I work for NECMEC, uh, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, which is hires those of us who've retired and have a background of crimes against persons. But uh, yeah, out of all of them I've seen and worked, this is, this is the one that stays with me, that haunts me, that doesn't seem to go anywhere. Why is that? Well, I think that, you know, the wrongful conviction really did a lot, getting getting off track for so long. And um, then I think there's a real um, avoidance of prosecutors after there's been a wrongful conviction, even if they uh, know who possibly was the real perpetrator, and this has happened many times in other cases where there's wrongful convictions, not in this state, but that I've learned about, that it just makes a trial so difficult to get by that reasonable doubt. Do you think that, that in our lifetime we're going to see 
justice for Peggy Hetrick? Yes. I, I think there's people who really believe that this is solvable, and I'm not one to ever give up. Peggy was always smiling. Well, she had she had a lot of ambitions. Whether it was dancing or a pool party, she liked having a lot of fun. She was, you know, just so sincere. Someone that I hadn't known her in life, I probably would have liked her. What would we be doing? And, you know, would she still be in Fort Collins? Would they have gotten back together? Would she be married now? I mean, um, I, yeah, I, you know, I miss her. Well, that does it for this little update. Please, if you haven't yet, head to coloradoin.com to read the story about Peggy and comment about any questions you might have. And as always, thank you so much for listening.